Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Good morning. Good morning. It's so good to be here. Well, we've been in a series on altars, the places where people encounter and connect with God. So when planning the series, it seemed like it was right to end with the altar of sacrifice and worship that was within the temple that was seen in Jesus's day. And I did. I thought it was a great plan, but I did not think that I was going to be the one to speak on it because, gosh, it's altar of sacrifices. These are animals. You know, I successfully avoided the scene in Bambi where the mother died for over 30 years. Okay, so... um, but, you know, when I went to Disney World they had an animation place, they, why did they show that scene in, that, in, the, in the show there? So anyway, um, but I was also hesitant to share on this topic because it seems a little more heady. It's a more, little bit more academic. But the more that I studied, this altar represents some key truths for us, especially as we start this Holy Week today, or as others call it the Passion Week, this week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. So my hope in exploring this altar is that we would more fully grasp the depth and the completeness of the sacrifice that Jesus did for us. And so since this is going to be a little bit more teaching than preaching, because I had my oldest son read through the message and he's like, mom, you're such a teacher. Like I have 37 power um, slides, I think, is it Todd? Uh, Okay. So I went a little bit overboard, but it is a little bit more teaching than preaching. Um, And so it it might require you for you to put more of your nerd hat kind of thing on. Um, And I, I want to remind you of something that I heard from the great, teachings of the franciscan monks they said drowsiness whenever the word of god is being taught is a sign of demon possession okay so so if the person next to you gets drowsy at all you have permission to lay hands on them cast any kind of demon out of them whatsoever all right so today we celebrate palm sunday jesus began this holy week with the triumphal entry He was riding on a colt of a donkey into Jerusalem and the crowds were throwing their cloaks down and the palm fronds on the ground before him. Upon arriving in Jerusalem, Jesus went to the temple, but because it was late, he left and he took time to make a whip from cords and then he went back to the temple the next day. And this is where he is known for cleansing the temple, the most pronounced example that we have of where Jesus was really angry. And was this a rash outburst that Jesus had in his final days? Or was it something that he more purposely planned for his final week? Now, there is some debate whether Jesus cleansed the temple once or twice. Three of the Gospels have it occurring right after Palm Sunday, and then John places it earlier. Most likely, it's one event. But the point of the cleansing of the temple is to communicate the same truth, even if it was two events. And it was a deliberate act of Jesus. Do you remember the scene? I found some pictures that were depicting different perspectives, like this one. This is the more meek and mild Jesus. I mean, to me, it looks like he's gently, calmly, maybe even sweetly overturning those tables. This is the picture that we would show the children if we don't want to scare them, right? Then there was, yeah, then there's this one. He's a little bit more angry here, right? Take a closer look at his face. Now that will scare children, won't it? Like that, that guy's scary. Um, Then there was this painter from New Zealand. And uh, look at those muscles like Jesus has. He's got some karate moves. I mean, he is, uh, he's got this furrowed brow. He's got that whip. I mean, he's a ticked off Jesus. I mean, he's literally lashing out in anger. So, um, but what does that Jesus, what does his face look like to you? Who does it remind you of? 
Yeah, I think it is, right, right? You know, our, our kids were recently sharing um, Chuck Norris jokes over dinner. So to keep with the theme that Jeremy had last, year, last week with the WWE and to honor Chuck Norris's 78th birthday was just a couple weeks ago, here's a couple of them. Superman and Chuck Norris once fought each other on a bet. The loser had to start wearing his underwear on the outside of his pants. Yep. Chuck Norris has a grizzly bear carpet in his room. The bear isn't dead. It's just afraid to move. And then my favorite, Chuck Norris played rock, paper, scissors. He chose scissors. So anyway, okay, so I digress. Back to Jesus. What was he doing in the temple? Now here's a video clip that may help get a little bit clearer sense of the essence that Jesus was wanting to communicate. out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He overturned the tables of the money changers and scattered their coins. Who sold pigeons? Take them out of here! Stop making my father's house a marketplace! His disciples remembered that the scripture says, My devotion to your house, O God, burns in me like a fire. The Jewish authorities came back at him with a question. What? miracle can you perform to show us that you have the right to do this? Tear down this temple, and in three days I will build it again. Are you going to build it again in three days? It has taken 46 years to build this temple. But the temple Jesus was speaking about was his body. So when he was raised from death, his disciples remember that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and what Jesus had said. What could possibly have made Jesus so angry? You know, I'm sort of drawn to it, but I'm like, ah, anger. Oh, wow. So if we were to appreciate the meaning of this cleansing of the temple, we have to get a deeper grasp of the rich Old Testament background. The temple was a very special place to the Jewish people because it was where God's presence was. And it reminded them that in the beginning, God gave a sanctuary, a place where we could live in the presence of God and meet him face to face. That sanctuary was the Garden of Eden. It was a place of perfect peace, fulfillment, and connection with God. But because of sin, we were banished from that sanctuary of God's presence. And this flaming sword with cherubim or an angelic beings, warriors, um, were put at the entrance of the garden. This was to to represent that the penalty for sin is death. 
that the way back into the presence of God is going to be is blocked by justice. There is no way back to the presence of God without going under the sword. And so, but while the Israelites were in the wilderness, God created a movable sanctuary, a tabernacle where people could draw near to meet with him. This tabernacle housed the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. It had all the elements that future temples would have, such as the Holy of Holies, which was the inner sanctum where God was most powerfully present. Later, Solomon would make a permanent physical temple. It was an architectural wonder. It was Israel's most prominent place of worship. But even then, with this incredible building, God alluded that the son of David would build a truly permanent house for God and for us. Solomon's temple was then destroyed by the Babylonians and the Israelites went into exile. And during that time, Ezekiel prophesied that there would be a new temple and a new David to build it. And it was going to be much grander than even Solomon's temple because the Lord's glory would fill it. It would become so large that all of the nations of the earth would be able to come to it and into it. And as soon as the, so as soon as the Israelites were returned from exile, they were pumped and they started to rebuild the temple but it did not fulfill the grand vision of the prophets because when they went to make the new foundation, the older people began to wept because it was so much less splendid than Solomon's temple because that temple was not the one that the prophet, that there was the prophecies about that temple was only going to be built by the Messiah. It was going to be Jesus, the new David when he came. And so what we know about the tabernacle, Solomon's temple and the temple from Jesus's day is that they were only meant to be a shadow of a truer temple to come. And this temple would not be a building filled with God's presence, but it was going to be a person in Jesus. So even though the temple of Jesus' day never quite recaptured its former glory with Solomon, it was still a very special and a sacred place. You know, Jews from all over the world would travel to the temple to worship, to pray, and to make their offerings to God. Jesus grew up, Um, making yearly travels to the temple remember when he was 12 and his family went to the temple at passover and when they headed home jesus stayed to talk with the rabbis and when his parents finally found him days later he was like well didn't you know that i would be in my father's house during jesus's day the temple would have been filled with noisy animals and commerce the sale of animals was essential for the temple's main function as a place for offering animals of sacrifice so could because and then bringing an animal from your home it risked something happening it to on the way like maybe another animal nipping its ear and it wouldn't be um without blemish so most people then chose to sell their own animal and then bring the money with them and then purchase a replacement in the courtyard the purchasing of the animals was not a problem but problems emerged because these preferred vendors they sold the animals at a huge markup I mean, it's a kind of like paying $17 for a hot dog and a Coke or eight bucks for eight cents of popcorn at the movie theater, but a lot, I mean, a lot more significant, right? But the temple vendors were preying on the poor and they were also money changers. Israel was occupied by Rome. So the Jewish people had to use Roman coins for their daily business, but Roman coins were not considered appropriate for use within the temple. Only Jewish shekels could be good enough to buy your sacrificial animal. So the money changers set up shop in the temple in the courtyard and they would exchange Roman coins for Jewish shekels and they charged huge transaction fees. I mean, these money changers grew rich. They gouged worshipers with high exchange rates, steep charges for their services. Some estimate that the money changers made millions of dollars annually. As a result, many people felt like the temple was oppressive, that the high priests were running it for their own advantage. 
We know from Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, that when he shared about the war of 66 AD, that the first thing that the rebels did was they burned the temple records of debt. That would be like us going into the banks and destroying the computers of all of the, of the debt. Jesus was filled with righteous indignation because people were being exploited in their efforts to connect with God, to offer sacrifices, to receive the forgiveness for their sins. So Jesus made that whip of cords. He started driving merchants and the animals out of the courtyard. He dumped over the money changers' coins and he knocked over tables. And Jesus' anger was so rooted in love, though. When Jesus cracked that whip and he started knocking over the tables and the furniture, the disciples remembered a prophecy that was written by King David like 600 years before. And you heard it in that video. It said, the zeal for your house has consumed me. And that zeal, that's what we see in it. It's a fierce love. And so what, we, we, what we're seeing in Jesus is that it wasn't just anger, it was zeal. A zeal for God's house and for God's people. And maybe you saw in February this year that enraged dad of three daughters who was, and those daughters were sexually abused by the former USA gymnastics doctor. During that sentencing hearing, the father tried to attack the doctor, but before he reached him, um, the dad was tackled by officers. I mean, there's been over 265 women that have identified as being abused by this man. The father's actions are an example of zeal, a fierce love. And the judge seemed to agree because after listening to his explanation for his attack, she didn't press charges. She said that they were inappropriate actions, but she did not believe that he should be punished. Jesus' actions in the temple were rooted in zeal and a fierce love. He goes after anything that gets in the way of our relationship with God. But there's even more to um, Jesus' purpose for cleansing that temple. This cleansing was going to be the very thing that would seal Jesus' fate with the priests. You could see their anger and lead directly to his crucifixion um, within days. Yet before Jesus even cleansed the temple, we know that the Pharisees already had issues with him. And why? Because throughout Jesus' ministry, he would announce to people that their sins were forgiven. He would give that person assurance that God forgave them. Um, This was an act that was in radical opposition to the normal protocol when somebody sinned. Because when somebody sinned, they needed to go to the temple, offer a sacrifice for their sins, And then afterwards, they could have a party to celebrate God's goodness and forgiveness. But when Jesus had interactions with people, he says, your sins are forgiven. They're forgiven right here and now. And let's have that party right now. So who did Jesus think he was? What was he doing? I mean, that would be like somebody giving you a passport or a driver's license right on the street, and you don't have to wait for hours to get them, right? Um, There was an exception. Um, when, when Jesus cleansed the lepers, there was an exception. He did ask them to go show themselves to the priest and to make an offering. Because in their culture, in order to be welcomed back into the community, you needed the priest's approval. But throughout his ministry, Jesus embodied a very radical alternative to the temple. Um, so with Jesus, God was showing us that this system of the temple was becoming redundant. So what does it mean, this cleansing of the temple? It was a protest over the exploitation with money, but even more so, Jesus' zealous behavior stopped for a time that continual flow of the animals coming in, being bought, and being sacrificed. It was like him saying that this whole system of paying for sacrifices to receive God's forgiveness is going to come to an end. And one day this entire system is going to stop completely. Jesus is radically saying, change is coming. What I'm going to do is the reality to which this temple had always pointed to. 
Now, it, it wasn't that the temple rituals were bad. God had created them. And it's hard for us to imagine a system where killing animals for sin seems acceptable. Um, you know, some seem to think that these people may have been less developed or less advanced. Because, you know, we wouldn't do anything so vulgar as that, right? But Jesus is not saying that. The temple wasn't bad. The temple was a signpost to the future God desired. And now God is saying it's time for the system to be deconstructed and destroyed. I like how John's gospel said it this way. The word became flesh and tabernacled or templed among us, and we beheld his glory. So after Jesus cleansed the temple, do you remember what he said? Um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the sacrifice. No other sacrifice is going to work. And Jesus is this final temple. And Jesus knew that if he hadn't made a really big point by purging this temple and stopping in the anger, people were not going to look at the temple differently because they would continue to bring their ritual of of bringing sacrifices for the forgiveness of of their sins to the temple because they'd been doing that for generations and generations. Jesus wanted to emphasize this is how the temple was changing and how it had pointed to him all along, to his life, his death, and his resurrection. He didn't want them to miss this most critical change in human history. When the temple authorities got a hold of him after Jesus had cleansed the temple, they asked him, well, what sign will you give for doing this? In other words, who do you think you are? By what authority are you kicking out our vendors? What do you think you're going to do to this system that we have in place here? And remember, Jesus' response was, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The temple authorities responded like, are you serious? It took 46 years to build this and you're going to raise it up in three years. And then John clarifies what that means. But Jesus was speaking of the temple, his body. He was speaking of his death and resurrection. And by offering himself up as the lamb of God, Jesus was going to open up a new way for us to live in relationship with him. By his death, by his resurrection, he was going to take down everything that gets in the way of our relationship with God. Not only the sin and the evil outside of us, but the sin and evil within. He made it that nothing can hinder us or prevent us from approaching the temple, from approaching God any longer. And in his great zeal, his fierce love for us, Jesus overturned every single table so that we might live in God's presence both now and forever. I mean, Jesus is the better and truer temple. And in order for us to see how perfectly Jesus is the new temple and how it affects us today, I wanted to look at a few of the elements from the tabernacle and the temple that God used to communicate more truths about who Jesus is. So without being too detailed, each of the buildings, the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, and the temple of Jesus' day had a similar floor plan. And this floor plan given to Moses shows how God had Jesus in mind for us the entire time. That's because the heart of God has always been to resolve the difference between his holy being and our sinful nature. So let's look at this image. So whether you went to the tabernacle or the temple, the first, the first, oh, I get to use this thing. Ah, the first furnishing that you got to use was this, um, was the altar. And that was the, the first thing that you would come face to face with. The word for, the Hebrew word for altar comes from the verb root meaning to slaughter. The Greek word for altar is a place of sacrifice. This is where judgment was meted out, and it was the largest of all the furnishings in the tabernacle. The blood of animals, their lives were consumed here as substitutes, emphasizing there's a seriousness to sin, and there's a holiness to God, and there is a price to pay to atone for sin. 
And you could not enter into this tabernacle without passing by this giant altar because it dominated the area. So to come to the altar was to understand that you were at the doorway of the presence of God. But because of your sin, God could not dwell with you. And it showed the Jews that the first step for sinful man to approach a holy God was to be cleansed by the blood of an innocent creature. We know that there were four horns covering the four corners of the altar. And those horns were a holding mechanism that would bind the sacrifices down. So an animal was brought to the priest and he, the person bringing the sacrifice, was to lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering so that it will be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. So by laying your hand upon the head of that animal, the person was identifying with the sacrifices, knowing that it's my sin, my guilt moves from me unto you. And then that person would kill the animal and then the priest would sprinkle the blood upon the altar. After the altar, you would go into the, you would see the, the, the laver, and that's where you would be able to wash and to clean yourself of dirt and mess. And then you were able to enter into the inner courts where you saw the lampstand, which is we, what we know as like the menorah. And then there was the, um, and that menorah was the only place of light in the holy place. It was a symbol that God would provide light to make your path clear. Then you moved over to the table of showbread, which represented that God would provide for all of your needs. And then right in the middle, there was the altar of incense, and that was a place of prayer and intercession. And then you went into the veil. The veil covered and led to the Holy of Holies, and that's where the presence of God was. So the tabernacle was to be an example of our journey of preparing your hearts for the, preparate, for the presence of God. So it made me think, like, if we had to design this temple, would we do it a little bit differently? Because like when we want to talk and interact with God, what's our approach? Do we think sacrifice first? First, How would we construct our floor plan? And maybe the first thing that we would want to come face to face rather than the altar is the showbread, like God's provision. Like what do you focus on when you pray? God, help me with this. Can you do this? God, could you provide here? I need this. I want that. Or maybe in the floor plan, the first thing that we want is the lampstand. Like God, I need direction. Tell me what to do. And those aren't bad prayers at all. God wants us to ask them and he wants to answer them. But could we learn something that the Jewish people knew so clearly that the very first thing in moving toward the presence of God was the altar of sacrifice? You couldn't go around it. You couldn't bypass it. You had to go through it. You had to lay something down and confront your sin. You were made keenly aware that you need a sacrifice. So how aware are we of our need for a sacrifice for Jesus and for his perfect sacrifice. How would our prayers be different? How would our lives be different if we were more aware of this? Now, the actual throne room of the sanctuary was called the Holy of Holies, and it was separated by this thick curtain and veil. It was a four-inch thick curtain of, like, red, blue, and purple linen, and it was so heavy that when the tabernacle and they would move it around, a hundred Levites were, were assigned to carry it because it was that heavy. Josephus wrote that the, the horses couldn't pull it apart. Now, this um, sewn into this veil were the cherubim that were supposed to be representative of the Garden of Eden. Um, that Remember, trying to help us remember that God was wanting us to get back to that kind of Garden of Eden sanctuary, that place where we would have total fulfillment and connection with him. Solomon, when he built the temple, he had put palm trees and flowers and engraved them in the walls, symbolically representing the Garden of Eden again. So this Holy of Holies was like a mini Eden 
And it was Jesus saying and making a step toward restoring that paradise. And it's a paradise that's going to be completed when Christ returns in the new heaven and earth. This veil was so thick and strong that no one could just like accidentally fall through it into the Holy of Holies. Because if you weren't a priest, you couldn't go into that Holy of Holies. And if you did, you would die. And it was only once a year that the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. That was on the Day of Atonement. That's where a lamb was sacrificed, a lamb without blemish, that would put all the people in right standing before God so they could be atoned or at one with God. And this was a very lengthy process for the peace for the priest. I mean, it was a week before the high priest was taken away from his throne. He was taken away and um, from his home and he was put into seclusion for an entire week. Why is that? So he wouldn't accidentally touch or eat anything that was unclean. The night before the day of atonement, the priest would stay up all night and read God's word to purify his soul. And then he would bathe from head to toe and dress in pure unstained white linen. Then there were three things he had to do he, to go in there. He, had, he went into the Holy of Holies and he offered animal sacrifice to God and he came out and he, he, to pay the penalty for his sin. And after that, he bathed again, put on new white linens and put them on again and went in and sacrificed for the sins of the priest. And then third, he went in and a third time bathed from head to toe, dressed in brand new pure linen and went into the Holy of Holies and atoned for the sins of all people. Now this was done in public. I mean, the temple was a crowded place and those in attendance watched closely. Now there was a thin screen and he bathed behind it, but the people were present because they wanted to see the priest bathe, dress, go in and come back out because he was a representative before God. They were cheering him on and they wanted, they were very concerned, do everything right because this is the way that they got to be in right relationship with God. So this day of atonement was yet another symbol, another way that God was revealing to us all that Jesus was going to do. And as you read through the events of this and this holy week that we're walking in, you'll see that Jesus is staging his own day of atonement. And just like the priest, Jesus began to prepare the atonement a week beforehand. And like the high priest, the night before, he stayed up all night. And what did he do? He was praying. But he wasn't clothed in rich garments like the Jewish high priest. He was stripped of the only garment that he had. Instead of being cheered on by his people like the priest was, he was jeered by them and abandoned by almost nearly everyone he loved. Jesus was not bathed in a purifying pool. He was bathed in human spit. And when he came before God, he didn't receive the words of encouragement. He felt his father's face turn away from him. And when he breathed his last breath, he cried out, It is finished. The temple itself responded. Do you remember the thick veil that stood between the Holy of Holies and the people? That symbol that represented that God was separate from humanity? That was torn in two. And for the first time in history, the way to God was wide open. There are two truths that come really clear as we realize that Jesus is our true temple. The first is that Jesus is the full and final sacrifice. Now, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Jews immediately connected that image to the altar, and it was a foretelling that Jesus' blood was going to be poured out like all of the animal sacrifices. Do you remember that sacrifice at the Lamb that the Jews celebrated yearly with the Passover? It was the remembrance that God had saved them in Egypt and passed over their homes for that final plague of death with the blood of a lamb placed over their doors. 
Do you remember that prophecy of Isaiah that Jesus would be like a lamb that is led to the slaughter? His blood was poured out on the cross for you. Because why did it have to happen? Because the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So Jesus willingly allowed himself to be tied like an animal to the horns of that altar as our full and final sacrifice. Now, I don't know about you, but it's it's hard to absorb the depth of Jesus' sacrifice. So maybe one of the points of action that we could do this week is to focus on that cross and that imagery of the altar. You know, to imagine that it's your hand on Jesus' head, recognizing that it is all your guilt and sin that is being transferred to Jesus, the the sacrifice that had no sin and no blemish, seeing your hand tying him to the altar and your actions taking his life. Now, I don't know, some of you may be like me. I can't handle that kind of imagery too much. Um, I go to a bad place. I mean, I can't handle Bambi's mom. Like, how do I do this one? Um, I remember trying to go through the Passion movie, which is a fabulous movie, but I covered my eyes for at least 90% of it. I could not figure out why the person next to me could eat popcorn that entire movie. I'm like, seriously. But the purpose of imagining our role in the sacrifice of Jesus and the cost that he paid is not to land in a place of overwhelming sadness or like, oh my gosh, I'm such a horrible, horrible sinner. I'm so bad. But it's to land in a, to more fully land in gratefulness. Because Hebrews tells us that under this new plan, we have been forgiven and made clean by Christ dying for us once and all. Once and all, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. No more need of the animals. And so, dear brothers, now we may walk right into the holy of holies where God is because of the blood of Jesus. And that leads to our second truth: that Jesus is the great High Priest. And since this great high priest of ours rules over God's household, let us go right into God himself with true hearts, fully trusting him to receive us because we have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and because our bodies have been washed with pure water. I mean, it's overwhelming to see how God did this plan of bringing this perfect sacrifice. He was so meticulously thoughtful and perfectly and absolutely Jesus fulfilled this. Um, I know it's probably a little bit cheesy and maybe even sacrilegious, but when I was reading all this and seeing all of these things coming together, I kept hearing from another TV icon, the A-Team, Hannibal, Cigar. What did he say? I love it when a plan comes together. I mean, this is a plan coming together to see all the details that that God had in mind for Jesus to fulfill in every aspect of the temple. And we only barely scratched the surface of all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Every line and theme in the Old Testament converges on Jesus. He made sure that everything was secure for us to have right relationship with him if we so choose. So what does it all mean to us? It means that Jesus is primarily not a teacher, but he's a savior. He has incredible moral advice. He has wisdom, but he is much more than a teacher. He's a savior. It means that being a Christian is not primarily being a nice person who subscribes to certain beliefs and moral codes. It's about experiencing a radical regeneration of our heart and a reorientation of our life. John says that we are regenerated when we believe in Christ because now that same raw presence that once shook the mountains that healed people from the dead, that terrified people, that killed living things on contact, that created the entire universe, now lives in us. 
For we who believe in Jesus are now temples in which the Holy Spirit of God dwells. So being a Christian is about being the temple of the Holy Spirit and partnering with God in bringing his power, his healing, his energy, his kingdom to this world. And we can be so confident in who Jesus is and that he lives in us. So as we enter this holy week, let us more deeply remember this cross, the altar, the powerful and perfect sacrificial work of Christ. So let's pray. God, I just want to thank you so much for who you are and for the way that you have uh, made such an amazing plan to bring us back into connection with you in such a powerful way. I thank you for the ways that you so visibly and tangibly show um, that you always had Jesus in mind. Thank you so much for the perfect work that you did. Lord, help us to honor you and to love you in ways that that really reflect the fullness of the work that you did for us. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.